Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 27, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. As always, I am Tom Panneries, and I what? am, yes, and, and who you just <laughs> heard is um, the Igor to my Victor Frankenstein, Ooh. which is actually not part of the book, but you know I just can't help but picturing Stella as Marty Feldman in Young Frankenstein. So, Stella, how are you? I am well. I just pulled out my plush Frankenweenie so that he can be alongside me as we delve into this book. Have you seen Frankenweenie? Okay, so it's a Steve Burton, so it's got some stop motion. I think your son would like it. It's kind of got spooky, but it, it's 
Frankenstein, but we've got young little Victor and he resurrects his dog. And then there are other elements. There's like a mummy that comes out. So they almost take all of the, the tropey Warner Brothers classic monsters and then meld them all together, meld them all together, but with younger, huh. younger kids as characters. So it's uh, a lot of fun. So I brought my Frankenweenie out so he could join in on the fun. I've heard time. of it. I just never, I have never, uh, I have never seen it. I, Brett did like the Nightmare Before Christmas. So maybe we'll check that one out. Um, but yeah, we are doing with we are doing Franken Frankenstein, not Frankenweenie. You were about, about to, to say, say Frankenweenie. Frankenweenie. We are doing Frankenstein <laughs> this month, um, and this was my choice. And we're going to do what we usually do. We're going to talk about our history with the book. We're going to give our um, a little bit of background on the author and the book itself, and do our synopsis and review. So, what is your history uh, with Frankenstein? So with Frankenstein himself, I have a personal history when I was younger. I would say before middle school, I watched a lot of the classic monsters, those mm-hmm. movies, you know, Creature from the Black yeah. Lagoon, uh, Dracula, I think was one of them, but, you know, Bella Lugosi, like the classic mm-hmm. people, werewolf, all those. And I loved them. Those are, those are the, the horror films that I really enjoy. And Frankenstein of, was, of course, one of them. I'm pretty sure there's also a Wishbone episode with Frankenstein, so I got to know a little bit more about the actual story. When I was in middle school, this is probably the most history I've had. When I was in middle school, I went to see a theatrical adaptation of it. It was on stage, and I remembered what I remember most about it was it was actually pretty intense for me I, I kind of get when i was younger i mean loud noises i used to like go under my chair so you know i was kind of a frightful creature but i do also very regret that day i regret it very much because i just remember being poorly behaved for my parents and my parents had got some guests with them so i do remember that a lot and then let's see here i read frankenstein a couple years ago it's on the senior reading list for our school i'm pretty sure it is and i was because one of my teachers in the same wing, she primarily teaches eighth grade. At that time, she also taught, I think, maybe one or two regular sections of seniors. And because she had books that were on my list, I ended up that year reading Frankenstein, Brave New World, I think 1984. So I was going through that curriculum just because it was easy to grab things off the shelf. And then, I think this is the last part, I they were going to have a National Theater Live production production of Frankenstein and it had shoot one of them was definitely um, Cumberbatch and then the other one I feel like his first name is Johnny he he plays in oh, Sherlock um, like the modernization um, on Lee CBS Miller. he was yes sick boy okay and so yes there you go so they what they would do, because there were two versions, it depended on which one you went to see, but they both had known either part. So one night you went, you could potentially see Miller as Victor and then Cumberbatch as a monster, and then the next night might be, you know, around. Now, the rumor was that there's going to be some full frontal male nudity. So that's why you went. And. <laughs> Tom, you know yeah, me know. so well. It's the wee wee, of course, the wee wee. Oh, so. I was going to take my parents with me. This is, and I needed to know for sure if there's going to be full frontal male nudity because I just thought, mm, I feel like 
you know, mom can sort of just go with it. Dad might be, it might be a little weird to be with, you know, two women. So I ended up calling and they said, yes. But, and so then I had to talk to her and I'm like, are you sure? Will you be okay? And they're like, yes, turns out no full frontal male nudity. So got my hopes up and everything got everyone all astir, but it was, it was really good. It was a great adaptation. And then I read it again for this show. So I feel like that's probably the longest history that I've had for any I, of the I books. I think it's a, at least for the some most extensive history you've had. Cause I know there yeah. are books that you have read, uh, multiple times multiple prior to times. this, but don't have the, varied and extensive history. I actually have a pretty uh, extensive history, but there, there. It's interesting because Frankenstein, or the, at least the, the the creature, the monster, is um, like such a a really well known image in our culture, specifically the one that's based on Boris Karloff. And um, so I was trying to think back, like, okay, like I I know when I first read this book, my, I was assigned this book in college, in um, I think it was my fall semester. No, it was my um, spring semester of sophomore year because according to the copy that I still have, I bought this in January of 1997. So, because <laughs> I still have my copy from college. But the Frankenstein and his monster himself, my knowledge of them goes back. I'm trying to think of like, okay, so like when did I first become aware of this novel and these movies, uh, Frankenstein. And I'm like, maybe I saw the monster on a cartoon like Scooby-Doo or something. Oh, I definitely yeah. watched my fair share of reruns of the monsters back in the day. Um, <laughs> yeah. they have caught bits and pieces of the Karloff film on TV. I didn't, I mean, I, I may have seen the whole thing. I don't know. It was one of those movies where like, there are certain images from that movie that are so burned into my brain because they're so popular in our culture that I don't know whether or not I saw it in full when I was younger. I did sit down and watch it a couple of years ago around Halloween. So I have seen the entire movie. Um, I do definitely remember, and, and these are, of course, I'm going to bring these up uh, later on in, in my section about uh, film adaptations. Uh, I do remember there is a 1986 movie called The Monster Squad, which uh, is which anybody who's around my age is listening to this probably knows what I'm talking about. And the, Fra the Frankenstein's monsters is is featured in that. So um, years and years and years of seeing the monster being portrayed or Victor being portrayed with the monster in some way or another on television movies and cartoons the novel you know i didn't read it in high school um i picked up dracula and read it in high school independently but mm. i never picked up frankenstein i think i had intended i did see the um kenneth brana movie back in 1994 in the ah. theater because i that was my first of like kathy and i went out for like what two and a half weeks or something like that. So that was our first official date and um, in in the fall of 1994. And um, that was about it until college uh, where I read this and, and had to discuss it for a class and I've read it a couple of times since. I taught it, I'd say about nine or ten years ago to seniors and um, as of this recording I will be teaching it to seniors once again in a few weeks so not as really cool so as did you hear that listeners 
Basically, we're doing Tom's work for him. The last time that this happened was 1984. He's going to go through our discussion questions and scratch out the ones that are like, meh, that didn't work. I'll I'll figure out something else for the the seniors. Well, at least with 1984, I think I had already taught the book. And my senior, I had cribbed the questions my seniors had used. So my seniors did the work for me in that one. Uh Aha. So, mm-hmm. man alive. Do people know you kind of remind me of uh, Professor Allen? Well, that's that's esteemed company to be in. <laughs> yeah. So per- sure, perhaps sure. that will get us an award if I if I if I mention oh, him favorably. Oh, so now who's the sycophant? <laughs> now who's the sycophant? We call that fishing for compliments. Yeah. Yeah, so um cuz cuz I can't afford I maybe if I send them a few quarters. So, oh my gosh! Uh, anyway, let's let's get into the actual <laughs> book and a little bit of the context of of the book and the real life history of the author. What I'm going to do is, speaking of doing your work for you, um, I have the Penguin Classics edition. That my printing is from the mid 1990s, as I said, um, and they have a pretty decent summary of the life of Mary Shelley, as well as a little bit of the background of uh, Frankenstein in itself. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read that. So, Mary Shelley was born in London in 1797. She's the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, who were famous radical writers of the day. Mary's mother died tragically 10 days after the birth. Under Godwin's conscientious and expert tuition, Mary's was an intellectually stimulating childhood, though she was emotionally undernourished. In 1814, she met and soon fell in love with the then-unknown Percy Bysshe Shelley, who is one of the, probably one of the most famous poets in uh, uh, in English history. I would, I don't think that's an exaggeration. He is, he is one of the kind of the luminaries of English poetry. Um, in July of 1814, they eloped to the continent, meaning continental Europe. In 1816, after Shelley's first wife, Harriet, committed suicide, Mary and Percy married. So I guess they officially married, because I always thought eloped was getting married in secret, but I guess they kind of ran off together. So Anyway. Of the four children that she bore Shelley, only Percy Florence survived. Uh, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley lived in Italy from 1818 until 1822, when Shelley drowned following the capsize of his boat, Ariel, in a storm. Mary then returned with Percy Florence to London, where she continued to live as a professional writer until her death in 1851. The idea for Frankenstein came to Mary Shelley during a summer sojourn in 1816 with her husband on the shores of Lake Geneva, where Lord Byron was also staying. Lord Byron being another one. Byron, Keats, Shelley, like, they're all... Those are, I remember the three being kind of grouped together, as well as like Wordsworth and Colors. I had to study like a lot of them in, a, in an English lit course in college. You know, big names in, in, in English poetry. So as she's staying on the shores of Lake, Lake Geneva, Byron's also there, and she was stimulated to begin her unique tale after Byron suggested this ghost story competition. Um, one of the things that is uh, really important about this trip is that this competition wouldn't have happened had the weather not been terrible. <laughs> Um, you know, they would have gone out and they would have enjoyed long walks and things like that, but apparently it rained most of the time and, uh, therefore they needed a way to entertain themselves. So Byron produced 
a fragment which later inspired inspired his physician John Polidori to write The Vampire, a tale. Mary completed her story back in England. It was published as Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus in 1818. Among her other novels, she wrote The Last Man, a dystopic story set in the 21st century in 1826. Perkin Warbeck in 1830, Lador in 1835, and Faulkner in 1837, as well as contributing many stories and essays to publications such as Keepsake and the Westminster Review. She contributed many biographical essays for Lardner's Cabinet Cyclopedia. 1835 and 1838 to 1839. Her other works include the first collected edition of Percy Bysshe Shelley's Poetical Works in 1839 and a book based on the continental travels she undertook with her son Percy Florence and his friends, Rambles in Germany and Italy in 1844. Mary Shelley died in London on the 1st of February, 1851. Now, the novel itself is rightfully credited with being one of the founding texts of science fiction. It has been celebrated time and again during the now 200 years since it was first published. When it was published, it was both praised and disregarded. And what I found peculiar was how Shelley's gender played a role into this. Now, I I do my research via Wikipedia, so one who has deep (laughs) knowledge of the reaction of Frankenstein upon this publication can either back me up or refute me here. But what I found was that the novel was originally published anonymously. Those who did not know the identity of the author were quick to praise it as a great work and say it was even groundbreaking. Those who actually knew that she was not only Mary Shelley, but was William Godwin's daughter, were more critical and actually criticized the more feminine nature of the prose in the book. Huh. This uh, proves nothing about... Mary Shelley, it just proves the critics have always been jackasses. Anyway, (laughs) since then, the book's reputation has grown significantly, and it is seen, as I said, as a landmark text that is often held up as one of the great books. It is used or referred to in the study of psychology as well as feminism, and is a mainstay of English literature classes, including my own. It has also been adapted into several media, such as plays, films, and comic books, starting as early as 1823 with the play Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein, by Richard Brinsley Peake. Famous film adaptations include a 1910 silent film, which you can view in its entirety on YouTube. It's not particularly long. The iconic 1931 Universal Studios production, directed by James Whale and starring Boris Karloff as the monster, which is still the most enduring image we have of Frankenstein's monster in our society. Further films featuring Karloff or other people in that role from Universal would follow, the most famous one probably being The Bride of Frankenstein, which came a few years later. Hammer Horror, that venerable British horror studio, produced a number of Frankenstein-based films from the 1950s to the 1970s, starring studio mainstays Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, as well as a number of other Hammer Horror films regulars. Say that three times fast. In 1994, Kenneth Branagh directed and starred as Victor in the film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, named so because the Francis Ford Coppola film Bram Stoker's Dracula had come out a couple years before, so, like, you know, why not name it the author's this and that? Uh, Two years later, we would get William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, courtesy of Basil Luhrmann, so I think that that trend eventually ended. 
Robert De Niro played the monster, by the way. Helena Bottom Carter played Elizabeth, and Aidan Quinn played Walton. Uh, Frankenstein has also been influenced or been parodied in a number of television shows and films, including uh, the aforementioned Munsters, where Herman Munster, played by Fred Wynn, um, and later in the new Munsters by John Shuck, is Frankenstein's monster, basically. Uh, the 1974 Mel Brooks comedy classic Young Frankenstein, which is my favorite film adaptation of anything related to Frankenstein ever. It is an absolutely hilarious movie. And, uh, of course, I can't mention this without mentioning Dr. Frankenfutter, the sweet transvestite from Transylvania, from the Rocky horror picture show which has frankenstein elements to it and finally as i mentioned uh in in our in our kind of background on the novel or our personal stories of the novel the monster was one of the creatures brought to life in the 1980s cult classic the monster squad and i would be remiss if i didn't say that the book and its characters especially its monster have appeared in comic books published by a number of companies including dc and marvel to the point where the monster has appeared in stories within the continuity of those companies universes uh the frankenstein's monster took on the x-men in one of their early issues i think it was like number 40 i have the essential upstairs i didn't look up the number and then um and frankenstein's monster has appeared in things uh, more recently some of the seven soldiers of victory stuff that Grant Morrison was doing about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and Marvel also published an adaptation of the novel courtesy of the late, great Bernie Wrightson. Um, I've heard really, really good things about Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein. I haven't had the chance to get my hands on a copy of it. Um, I hope to one day, perhaps if I see a reprint of it at like a comic convention or something, and it's at a decent price. Because every time I come across it on eBay or Amazon, it's not money I have to spend. But I will, I will, you know, I'm also cheap and I'm also trying not to buy a lot of stuff. So, yeah. well, I was about to suggest because you know who comes through is little Uncle, uh, Uncle Alan Middleton. He always sends stuff, but because you made it sound like it was super expensive, I doubt that he'll come through. I don't think you can get this for a quarter. So, yeah. I will say before I get into the plot synopsis that, um, my rundown of adaptations is really barely scratching the surface as to how much Frankenstein, especially Frankenstein's monster, has been a part of our culture beyond just adaptations of the novel. I mean, you mentioned Frankenweenie, the Tim Burton name. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Frankenberry, the cereal. Yeah. Oh, I mean, come on, like, you know, you've got Count Chocula and Frankenberry. I mean Dracula and Frankenstein. You don't have those without those without Mary like without Bram Stoker and Mary Shelley. So you've got I mean, you, you have to you have to point out like how just how ingrained this this concept is in our popular culture. So um, in fact, there's some like really crappy looking Keanu Reeves movies coming out soon called like replicas or something. I saw the, I saw the, <laughs> I yeah, think it's it's out now. I saw the preview while I went to see, um, who's their Aquaman or into the spider verse. I think one of the movies I saw over the, uh, over the Christmas holiday, um, I saw, and I was just sitting here going like, Oh, so you're basically doing Frankenstein. So, whoa. So, all right. On to the plot synopsis, shall we? Okay. Sure. So, 
Frankenstein is told using two particular storytelling devices. First, it is an epistolary novel, meaning that is told strictly through letters, much like another novel that we read and discussed on the show in episode 11, which was Ella Minnow P. Yay. Second, it is a frame story. In fact, at one point, it is a frame story within a frame story. Yet for all of what seems like very complex storytelling, it is actually a very straightforward tale. The letters that we are reading are written by Captain Robert Walton to his sister Margaret. He is a failed writer who has taken up an exploration and is piloting it in the direction of the North Pole. They are slowed and do eventually get stuck in ice. While they are in the Arctic, they run across two figures. One who passes by them on a dog sled is a gigantic figure. The other is a man they rescue and bring aboard who turns out to be Victor Frankenstein. Over the course of the novel and most of the rest of Walton's letters to Margaret, Victor relates the story of his life and the circumstances surrounding how he came to be near the North Pole where Walton could find him. He is a member of a wealthy family from Geneva and is one of three sons of Alphonse Frankenstein. During his childhood, the Frankensteins adopted two daughters, Elizabeth and Justine, the latter of which would end up becoming the nanny of Frankenstein's youngest brother, William. From a young age, Victor is curious about the natural world, especially theories about stimulating natural wonders, and decides to go study science at the University of Ingolstadt. Right before he leaves, his mother passes away, and that prompts Victor to throw himself into his studies. He becomes an expert at chemistry, biology, and related science, and also takes an interest in alchemy. Ultimately, he decides to create a person from an, an inanimate body and procures a number of body parts to assemble what winds up being a giant eight-foot-tall man, whom Victor is horrified by when he finally brings it to life and uh, causes Victor to flee his apartment and his laboratory. After Victor's experiment, which he actually believes is a failure, his childhood friend Henry Clerval comes to see him, and he, when he finally brings Henry to his place, the creature has disappeared. Victor then falls ill, and it winds up being Henry who nurses him back to health. This takes about four months, and as he comes back to health, he receives a letter from home that William has been killed, remember this is his youngest brother, under mysterious circumstances. Justine, who is his nanny, has been accused, and she does confess to the crime. However, it is a false confession. She knows she didn't do it, and Victor pretty much knows as well, because he's figured out that it's the creature who did it. But Victor does not confess ex his experiment and is therefore unable to save Justine from being hanged. He retreats into the mountains, and that is where the creature finds him and tells him the tale of his own birth, survival, and education. After Victor fled the apartment, the creature left and soon found that people found his appearance horrifying. He then wandered through the woods and lived off what he could before finally coming to a cottage in the countryside. The cottage has had an abandoned structure, and the creature lived there for a while. It's here where, through observing the people who lived in the cottage, that he learned to speak as well as read, and Evie came to think of the family as friends, even though they didn't know him or know of him. Eventually, getting to the courage to approach them, he befriended the father of the family, who happened to be blind, but when the rest of the family saw him, they were repulsed, drove him out of the house, and eventually hunted down Victor by using details that he gleaned from reading Victor's journal, which he had stolen. He says that he did murder William, and he did frame Justine for it, and he will hunt and kill the rest of Victor's family if he does not comply with his wish to have a mate. The creature promises that if Victor does provide a mate for him, they will go to live in South America, and they will leave society alone. 
Victor agrees to do this and eventually heads to the Orkney Islands, which are in the northern part of Scotland. He, be- he begins assembling a female creature on the island. Henry Clerval accompanies him, at least part of the way there. But Victor insists on being alone, especially because he thinks the creature is following him. This, of course, turns out to be true as the creature murders Clerval, and Victor, speculating that the creature and his new wife would breed this horrific race of monsters that would eventually take over the world, refuses to finish his work and destroys the female creature before she can be animated. Victor is framed for Clerval's murder, but is eventually acquitted and returns home to marry Elizabeth. This doesn't last long, as the creature who had made a vow that he would be with Victor on his wedding night murders Elizabeth. Victor's father dies from grief and old age shortly thereafter, and Victor pursues the creature to the North Pole, which is where he now is. At this point, the creature has not been spotted again just yet, but because the ship has been stuck in ice, the crew wants Walton to just turn around and head south the moment they are able to get free. While Victor does proceed to lecture them on the value of a difficult undertaking, Walton relents to the crew and says that they will head south the moment they can move. Victor decides that when that day comes, he will head off on his own again. However, he dies on board the ship shortly thereafter. Upon Victor's death, the creature appears. He is mourning over Victor's body and says that his creator's death did not bring him any peace or satisfaction. He vows to pay for his crimes, for which he holds himself responsible by committing suicide. The creature then heads off into the icy waters of the Arctic, never to be seen again. So that is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I'm going to ask the question we always start our Q&A off with, which is, Stella, did you like it? I did like it. It's not an uplifting tale by no. any means. I think we knew that going in, <laughs> but right? I'm, I'm sorry. We knew that going in, though. We did, we did. So I'm not going to hold it against you like I did with Call mm. of the Wild. Um, I liked it too, of course, or else I wouldn't have have chosen it. So <laughs> I do have a question sure. for you. I don't think that this is one of our mm. questions, but how exactly was he eight feet tall? Because, I mean, if he's using other body parts, does that mean that he's attached like femurs and fibulas I, together instead of just one whole I leg? I was curious. I was reading a summary of this, and, and as I was kind of going back through my notes and just me double checking to see that, like, you know, the synopsis that I was writing was accurate. And he kind of mismeasures or misaccount or doesn't account enough for all of the very intricate workings of the human body as he's putting it together. So he has to compensate by kind of sewing this creature together on like a, a bigger scale than he intended. Okay. So, so maybe not one full leg, but yeah, like, like he was, yeah, put together. So like it, it, he, it's almost like he mismeasured and everything ended up bigger than he than than it that he had intended because he didn't account for certain parts or the way certain things are arranged in in the human anatomy um in okay. in uh in some film adaptations um depending or, or adaptations that they've had them like dig up a body and the body just happens to be a little tall person or whatever. And then the brain, of course, is like from something, you know, what else or whatever. 
Um, mm. The Simpsons does this by in a Treehouse of Horror by um, or no, they had a robot and they put Homer's brain in the robot's body. But yeah, gotcha. so okay. But, I just wondered. I, I was trying to figure out why he was. Yeah, it's, so it's tall. like it's like he mis- <laughs> he mismeasured certain things and therefore had to compensate by making the body bigger than it w- it originally was supposed to be. Okay. So I'm glad I'm glad you liked it. I liked it as well. It is actually one of my favorite novels uh, of all time. So I was I was very. Oh yeah, wow! This has always been I, this. I've loved this novel um, since the first time I read it, which is interesting because as much as I love the 1931 Bar- Boris Karloff movie. I love that as a movie and not as an adaptation of Frankenstein because it's totally mm. to, to a very large extent. It is not faithful to the book, but I've always liked from the moment I read this book, I've always loved it. And, and every time I read and I've reread it, I think about two or three times now over the last 22 years since I first read it. So it's, it's never lost its luster, which other books have, but we can get into our questions one of the questions that, and you had written a few and I written a few, and um, this is something that I think that is, this is something I think that if, if you're coming in cold to the book Frankenstein and you are, f- you are really familiar only with the films, right? And, and the image of Boris yeah. Karloff, Frankenstein doesn't appear for a while and doesn't even get named. It's like the the first um, few things of the book are all about Walton and his expedition into the North Pole, and and then eventually he meets Frankenstein and finds out who he is, and etc. So why this delay? Why start with Walton, and why why delay naming Victor yeah. Frankenstein? And it's funny because I think a misconception with people who've not read mm-hmm. the book who don't know like know about the story always assumes that the monster's name is Frankenstein. <laughs> it I mean it happens a lot now I think it's sort of a, a trope or a joke that people will make on, you know, TV or something and someone will I know it all will say like that's not the name yeah, of the exactly. monster. But yeah, it's interesting because you know, as I was Reading this, I, of course, I know his name is Victor Frankenstein, but it just takes a while for, you know, the family name to come up and then for Victor to be named. And I think Frankenstein obviously is the more powerful of the two, but to get to know the person who is narrating the majority of this book or being, you know, the mouthpiece for Walton, mm-hmm. I guess that would be the right way of using mouthpiece. I wonder if it's uh, – I, I, I would think that it's heightening the suspense, building it up until it's finally released that it, this is Frankenstein. This is whom we're talking about because if you didn't know, if you were going in very blind and you started reading this, you're trying to figure out who's this Frankenstein person. First person you encounter, his name is not Frankenstein, yeah. so who could this be? And then it's finally – unleashed upon you uh i don't know about 50 might be too much maybe like it was it took a little bit though like 20 pages which still you know it seems like a little bit you know i'm used to not to be nerdy but with virgil's aeneid aeneas isn't named for a very long you don't even see him for a very long time there's like the intro and then the first time you see him it's in the middle of the storm so there's all that time so it heightens suspense and then when he comes in it's not necessarily with a bang because it's, you know, his uh, his upbringing and everything. But I just feel like everyone's hanging on there and and waiting for it that once she names him, 
I think that she's captured you and you're all, you're like really engaged already because you're like, oh, this is the guy that we're talking about. And then you want to follow along. So that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. Now, so he, he first appears in the fourth letter or letter four as far as the chapters are are called in, in my edition here, which is the letter from August 5th of 17 whatever. Um I don't remember where the first word Frankenstein, it might be in chapter, somewhere in chapter one, which is a little ways in. So yeah, it's, um, it'll, it, so yeah, it is a little bit of a ways in. That's the, it doesn't look like chapter no. one yet. Cause they even mention Elizabeth. Elizabeth yeah, gets he goes into a, Yeah, he goes into a lot of his, um, a lot of his, uh, what's it called? His family history, his backstory, and everything, and he, I know it eventually gets much. So it is, it is really interesting to to know that that you know you really don't see the the word Frankenstein for for quite a while in the um, in the book, but you don't see him either. And it's interesting to see how, or I, I just said that little bit of foreshadowing that the creature is out there and a, that that defines Victor, and it's it's after, and everything is told in flashback in terms of the frame story. Which, um, which is a tr- that itself has become a trope as well. There are a lot of there are a lot of books and and movies that use the that use framing devices to show a show something that has already happened and that is going to catch up with the um, with the narrator at one point or another. So you know that that they have paused in their in their journey or their quest or their their story to tell somebody else the story. So Walton's kind of, kind of an an avatar for the audience. Is that the correct word, avatar? Like he's standing. Yeah, in place of the like audience? like you know, Victor might as well be telling the story to us. Um, you know, this still is an age where you have scientific exploration and and things. I know that, I know that um, she had. I think the works of Charles Darwin were being published at the time. Um. Or, or there's, you know, in that, in that there was it's kind of contemporary to that. Um, you have something, and I'll bring this up later. Uh, one of the more famous uh, poems of this period is Coleridge's "The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner." So the idea that um, you would have somebody on a seafaring voyage or people would be reading stories about seafaring uh, is not out of the question. So, so maybe like you know Walton kind of represents that on some level, you know, the, the person who would want to go off and set off on a great adventure. Um, and, but it's also kind of the audience for the story and, and stuff. Um, but it is, it is in letter format. And then it's that secondhand narration. Um, aside from what I just mentioned that perhaps Walton is kind of a stand in for the audience and that maybe she is building suspense because we've caught a glimpse of the creature right away. What else do you think? What else do you think she's doing? Like, why not just start? Why not? Why have Walton there at all? Like, you know, what, what is she trying to accomplish in formatting her novel? This way? It's interesting. Yeah. The, uh, before I answer that, I just want to say that the first time I, I have found it, I flipped through it twice is chapter five. And it actually, in my book, is in the fifties. Okay. Frankenstein and then Victor both coming from his friend Henry. So that's interesting. But he's already at oh, school okay. at that point. So why use, yeah, why use Walton? What's his purpose instead of just starting right in, yeah. you know, being a Genevan and, and, or, yeah, why yeah, not, that was why right. Why not start on chapter one, which 
says, I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors, blah, 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 yep. blah, blah. Like, what, why not yep. start there instead of having yeah. Walton? <laughs> it is interesting. And even when I, when I read it the first time, I thought, what is this? Why am I not, you know, in first person or third person omniscient with Victor being my character? Who is this guy? But I feel like this time I had a greater appreciation for Walton. And the reason is, and I think it all comes in, now I don't know which letter it is, I'd have to look it up. But one of his statements really struck me when he's writing to his sister how open he is and how sad he is so desirous of a companion or friend. And I think having that and then all of a sudden one falls into his lap and tells him this story that involves a creature who is desirous of the exact same thing. That's all he wants is some sort of companionship. Yeah. And so I think in this way, you you lead off with this character that, I mean, who could really care about whether he wants a friend mm-hmm. or not? You know, it's sad. That's fine. But once you have everything else, it very much involves, because this is a lot about good and evil, you know, is evil created or is it born, that sort of thing. But I think also underlying it is just as human beings, as creatures, you know, living creatures, we all would like, we're desirous of fellowship or, you know, being in community, having someone with us, a companion, and he's the first person who starts that theme off. And then it's able to continue and you're able to see that with the, the creature as well. So it's all, it's very happy for Walton near the end when he feels like he has that comrade with Henry and he feels selfish because he wants him to stay there. And then it's sad because he's taken away from him again. So that's, that's my thinking is that it starts you off on that path, on that theme so you can better, I think, understand it and show more empathy and compassion towards the monster. Yeah, and you got, and you're right. So he mentions it in his like second letter. He says, it's true that I have thought more. I greatly need a friend who would have sense enough not to despise me as romantic and affliction enough for me to endeavor to regulate my mind. Um, I shall certainly find no friend on the wide ocean, nor even here an archangel among the merchants, seen seamen, et cetera, et cetera. But then, um, but then later on in the fourth letter, when he's already met Frankenstein, he said, I said in one of my letters, my dear Margaret, that I should find no friend on the wide ocean. Yet I have found a man who before his spirit had broken by, been broken by misery, I should have been happy to have possessed as the brother of my heart. Which, so yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, this kind of lonely guy, and it does set up, it does set up later the, fact that the the monster craves the same sort of friendship and companionship from somebody um especially since the creature was rejected by his own creator um Mm -hmm. and uh so it does help draw that parallel and it's interesting how at least in that second excerpt that i just read he's he's almost uh, he, he likes the fact that he found somebody that he could be friends with or who is kind of on his level but at the same time you can you can get a a little bit of a twinge or a pang of regret because Frankenstein's kind of already gone. You know, like he's, he says, you know, he, he's kind of swallowed up by his own misery. So, you know, he almost like longs for the type of person he knows Frankenstein once was or Victor once was before whatever turned, whatever happened to him happened to him. Cause he doesn't know it yet. Cause Victor hasn't told his in- entire tale. So, yeah. So he goes off and then there's, um, there's the 
there's a couple of chapters of his background. Um, and then we have the creation of the monster. And um, there's a quote that she would say was on page, I think this was you, page 46. Yeah, mine is. Um, yeah. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. And the question is, did this upbringing cause Victor to not respect death? If he had been taught otherwise, would this have changed the outcome of the story? Yeah. Yeah, the the quote continues. Mine's a Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. version, so yes. <laughs> just in case. Let's see here. It's uh dur, 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 dur. I do not even re- oh in my nope, that was it. Okay. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. So he's very scientific about it, clinical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first off, this is almost, I will say, reversal of thinking for me because I feel like if I had never experienced, like, been raised, then the first time that I had encountered such a thing, I'd really be freaked out. Whereas, you know, as... <laughs> I was going to say Americans. I don't know if that's necessarily – I think this is probably a worldwide problem. But the idea of our senses almost being dulled by, you know, repeated violence or, you know, too much sex on TV, like all that stuff. I feel like, you know, seeing that over and over again, you sort of get used to it. So that was my first thought was a reversal of thinking. But then I thought because he just goes at it and, you know, does his little creation and he's working with these dead bodies – He almost seems, I don't know if it's irreverent, but I feel like he doesn't have the respect of death or just of what he's doing, like the science of it. Well, I can't say that because he does respect the science, but let's just say death, death and superstition. Uh And because of that, I just feel like he... That, that's why he continues about his work. Like, he gives it no second thought. And then, of course, once it happens, man, a light bulb goes on and he regrets everything that he does. So I just wonder if, you know, like a what if tale by Marvel, <laughs> if his father had ingrained this and, and maybe the import of death, which is shocking because his mom died and Elizabeth was near death. So you think there would be more of a regard towards that, that he would have treated the whole situation differently or he he may not have done it i don't know but then you know i don't know if i can give you an answer because then i was just thinking about he did witness his mother's death elizabeth almost died so maybe he is of course trying to conquer it but i just feel like he's almost egotistical in that way and feels like i can conquer it and and there's a lack of respect for death itself and all of that and it might just stem from his upbringing but i i was just caught by that in this reading this time well this is gonna this is gonna tie to a couple other questions we had in our in our list of questions but there's the idea of hubris that um i think in a modern context it's um essentially the fatal flaw of of arrogance or pride like you know the idea that that you are have are so arrogant, and, you know, uh, so cocky that that is going to be your downfall. And we see that in we see it in Shakespeare quite a bit, right? Um, I think we do see that here. The idea that that um, you know his his mother's death is one of the things that because it happens so close to him going to university that he 
to cope with his mother's death on some level, he throws himself into his studies and becomes almost like obsessed with what he's doing to the point that he, I think you're right, he doesn't really, he doesn't think of it in the context of whether or not he's respecting death or anything like that. He is, it is irreverent in a big way. And this also ties into the, um, the, another thing we'll talk about a little bit. One of the, one of the two big literary illusions in the novel is its subtitle, the modern Prometheus. And if, you know, if you know the story of Prometheus, he was a Titan who created man and stole fire from the gods. And something that at least, you know, to kind of boil down the, the ancient Greek definition of hubris is essentially that like, you know, one of the ways to be hubris, is that even a word? Um, is Probably. yeah, maybe is to defy the gods. You know, you see, in like I'm teaching the Odyssey to freshmen right now. You see it in in the Odyssey because for all his cleverness, Odysseus is an arrogant jerkwad half the time, and it gets him into trouble. You know. He would have gotten home a lot quicker had he not pissed off Poseidon. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Of course. You don't want to piss off the god yeah. of the sea when your main mode of transportation is a boat. But, you know, so the idea that, like, he is he is defying... He, he is arrogant enough to think he can do this. He's arrogant enough that he can kind of beat death and maybe subconsciously he's trying to rebel against death in some way as a way to punish death for taking his mother. If I'm, if I'm kind of going down that road. Um, and then, and then he's also kind of, you know, he is, he, he's not just defying anybody in the Greek pantheon in this case, because, you know, they were not, you know, they're not, they're not worshiping the Greek pantheon, but he is defying that natural order of things. Whether or not Victor actually believes in God, I am not entirely certain, but there is this sort of, you know, call it what you will, a higher power whatever religion we want to choose or just kind of this natural order that like, you know, things are supposed to go a certain way. He is spitting in the face of that. He's flying in the face of that with this experiment. And he doesn't seem to realize it until he actually does it. But then again, and I guess here's the next question. Why is he so disgusted by the creature? <laughs> when, because first of all, it's odd to see the creation scene in this novel when we are so familiar with the one in the Karloff movie and, and all the other. You sure, know, there's no lightning in this one. You know, like that yeah. whole thing um, where he is like the mad scientist. You know, he's 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 a mad scientist here, but like he, he never revels in his creation. He he literally runs from it. And then when he gets back. The creature's gone, and then the creature haunts him for the rest of the book. So why is he so disgusted? Why doesn't he delight? No. Why doesn't he embrace, you know, I'm your daddy, you know, that, that sort of thing? <laughs> to quote Mr. Oh, Burns. man. Yeah, and, well, first, I couldn't even believe that he slept in the same, like, apartment with it. And then I had to reread the scene because I was trying to figure out sort of the logistics of it. But I guess the creature gets off the table and lifts the curtain that's around his bed. And that's when he runs out. And yeah. I sort of pictured him like uh, the apostle that is in the the the, the sheets at, uh, at when Jesus gets arrested. And then, like, I think it's only in mark uh -huh. that this happens but he like runs off and drops a sheet i'm like who is this guy but anyway i just imagine that frankenstein victor had done that as well yeah it is a change it is so abrupt it's so abrupt that i just almost feel like it's bad storytelling like there's not even a moment i feel to gloat uh i 
I I really didn't see it. I I'd have to pull it up to see how that. I don't know if I have a page number or not. But it's it's startling. It's startling. And so part of me is like, is that does that make sense for the character? I feel like for Victor, am I my impersonation? No, not my uh, impression. There we go. Of Victor is that for a moment he would have, I think fancied his creation but it is so abrupt that he instantly hates it and i don't i just don't know why i don't know what i just feel like it's a bad character moment that it's one time that i i can't see because i i can't necessarily explain a way why he does it unless there's some sort of cloud over him and then you know the veil sort of parted and he realized what he had done but leading up to all that because compare the first monster with the second monster, even if you take out, you know, all the terrible things that the first monster did, he is so sick, like ill, physically, yeah. you know, creating that second monster. It is such a contrast with this one that he's just going about his business with the first one. He's in, enjoying it. Obviously, his health is is taking a bad turn because of how invested it is. And, and maybe that's sort of symbolic of he realizes maybe subconsciously what he's doing and that's why he's taking a dive. But I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I feel like it's a bad character moment on the, on the part of Shelley, but you know, that's, that's probably bad form to, to, to blame the author. What do you think? Uh, I'm looking at it. It's the very, very beginning of chapter five is chapter when, five. is Thank when you. he, um, is when he creates the monster. He says, uh, it was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features of beautiful, beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost the same color as the dun-white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and black, straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and the breathless horror and disgust and sorry and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart unable to endure the aspect of the being i had created i rushed out of the room and continued to a long time traversing my bedchamber unable to compose my mind to sleep uh, and then then we kind of go on to where the creature wakes up and and he sees him and then he leaves the room and everything and um he he runs out of the he not only runs out of the room he runs out of the building and um, yep. and he'll later run into Henry Clerval, and then he said. But right before that, um, he says, "I continued walking in this manner for some time, endeavoring my bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. 
my heart palpitated in the sickness of fear. So he's like having a panic attack, essentially. And I hurried on with her regular steps, not daring to look about me. And then she quotes um, the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Like one on a lonesome road who doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Um, and if you know anything about the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, this crew gets lost at sea, an albatross, which at the, which an albatross, which um, to sailors, an albatross flying was a good omen. Well, the mariner kills the albatross, and then um, that curses the crew, and he spends the rest of the voyage with the albatross hung around his neck, and death comes and takes the entire crew, but a, be another being called life, I think life within death or something, life in death, spares him, and he has to make this, it's like this supernatural spooky voyage of this, of this, uh, of this ship and eventually um he he makes it out but it's this story that he tells to people like you know beware and like you know he people are haunted by his story um and such but the idea that like you know he keeps going and he knows something is behind him and they're all spooked out by it i don't know where the turn is unless Unless it's in that clue of I had thrown myself into my work for two years and finally looked up to see what I had done and like, oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Which is not which is a he talks about human nature. It is a natural reaction to things sometimes. You know, the idea that um, it's such a cliche to say you can't see the forest for the trees, but the idea that you are so. You are so tunnel vision about what you are doing that when the ramifications of it, the consequences that can be derived from it, like all the different things that all the ethical issues that, that come about it that you don't see because you're so focused on winning or getting the job done or finishing your work or whatever, when you finally get there you have that moment of realization where you realize like all of the negative that has come with it. And you, some people just wonder, well, was this all worth it? And some people do realize, yeah, it was totally worth it. But then there's that feeling of regret. And here, I mean, he's prone to dramatics anyway. So it is this dramatic horror. So I think in part, it is a little bit of lazy writing. I mean, I really like the way Shelley writes this, but the, the the creation scene I think could have, or maybe this is me just um, coming at from a modern perspective, could have been more vivid. I feel like we're being told and not shown too much in in this part of the novel, as far as at least the actual experiment. But we do know that he was arrogant enough to follow one professor, reject another, you know, and so like we have yeah. all the details of his studies, so. You know, when he finally steps away from that blind arrogance that he has, he sees that he has done a very horrible thing, and perhaps finally the moral, the morality of it all kicks into him when it when it really hadn't been there because he was so tunnel visioned about it. So, but I do kind of agree with you that, that I don't know. It could have been. Uh, there's something weak about it, though. Even though it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the book. Oh no, no, I agree with that. It just seems so, and then. I, you know, I guess he's overcome with such a fright, but just imagine if he had realized what he had done and ripped up his little guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right there. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Although, I mean, granted, we wouldn't have a story 
And uh, oh, yeah, and and Prometheus. The whole thing was that Prometheus was punished for what he did, no matter you know, no matter what it was. And and the ancient mariner had his uh, the albatross. The, the image, the, the phrase albatross around it, my neck comes from the rhyme of the ancient mariner um as does the saying even though it's not part of frankenstein water water everywhere but not a narrative yeah that's a line from the rhyme of the ancient mariner um and i only say this because it's uh, because in preparation for teaching frankenstein i'm having my students read the rhyme of the ancient mariner but just kind of thinking about that the idea that he has somehow angered the gods in a matter of speaking he's upset the natural balance he has he has just pissed off the spirits and stuff and now he has a lesson to learn and you know the the creation of the monster is not the big it's important to the novel obviously but it's all the things the monster does to him and the monster the creature itself to me is the bigger part of the book than victor in fact i don't like victor very much i don't know about you no, I. Yeah, I mean, he's not the most likable. No. Of gods. Yeah. I, I. It's the people around him that are very likable. Mm-hmm. I always hold Victor Frankenstein up as an example of a protagonist who's not necessarily a hero or is not even likable, but he's compelling, and the story is compelling. So you still want to see what happens to him, even though you don't like this guy necessarily. Yeah. Um And he's not. He is not. He's a tragic hero, but he's not a tragic hero in the way that um, Marcus Brutus was. Because I, I like Mark. Oh. I like Marcus Brutus. You know, and you could see yeah. the justification for the murder of Julius Caesar. Um, oh. You know, even though murder is wrong. Um, even though murder, but is like wrong. Macbeth is another good example of a protagonist who is a horrible, horrible human being, but you're compelled enough to see how these things play out. And I think that's what we have here because I don't know about you. Did you feel more sympathy for the monster? Did you like the creature more than you liked Victor? Because I liked the creature, even though he does some horrible things. I well. do. Yeah, I like the creature, especially during his tale, and I absolutely see, you know, compassion. I have compassion and empathy for him and yeah, but I still, I, I can't not to use some light toadies there. Can't not feel sadness for Victor as, you know, his friends are, are taken away from him. And then you don't like the, the creature because of his, like the smiling though, you know, that's from Victor's perspective. Uh So I don't know if he really is, you know, once, he discovers, I think, especially Elizabeth is is one of the big ones. He sees him on there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I yeah maybe equal. They both have their their positive and negative qualities. He the moment Victor flees, he eventually he picks up Victor's journal because that's how he learns who Victor actually is. But he he's not born. Um, he, he's very much like a baby when he's born. Babies are not, obviously not born with the ability to read. <laughs> Or even no. reason, you know? There are yeah. teenagers I know who don't have the ability to reason. But he learns these things. And he learns it by uh, finding this hovel that's next to this, this house in the French countryside that is popu- that is lived in by a family who are a... Um, who actually are exiles from France. I believe they were fleeing the reign of terror or something to that extent. Uh, cause this takes place in the late 1700s. 
um, and or sometime in the 1700s. So they they had fled France, and there's this whole kind of inner saga as I smacked my microphone by accident. Uh, this inner saga between uh, this this family and and the woman who the son was in love with, etc. And and he's it's almost like he's watching his favorite television show. As he's like paying attention to these people, because he can see them, he can hear them. He helps them out without them knowing, like he would do their chores for them. You know, like chop all the wood and stuff while they were away, so that they had you know more time to themselves as a family. And he finds books in and around the house, and he starts teaching himself how to read. And he essentially educates himself. And I was wondering how now he was he he knew people were frightened by him like almost at the beginning of his life but how much of the creature's feeling eventually like an outcast is the result of the education that he he basically receives um or t- or, or result of him be, becoming more educated and becoming intelligent because I think I think if you're only familiar with the Boris Karloff Frankenstein you would be very surprised that the creature can talk you know and so he teaches himself, like, would he have been better off, would ignorance have been bliss, if he had never spoken or read or anything like that, would the creature have been better off? But No, I don't, because I don't think that that was his issue necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it was, and it was always going to happen this way, unless he had stayed just alone for the rest of his life. If any of his interactions with other human beings is what caused him to realize that there was something wrong with him. Uh-huh. Because the first thing that I think we see that he did was, I think a girl fell into the river. Yeah. And like a little girl or she was falling over something and he saves her. And then somebody comes along and assumes because there's this monstrous person and a little girl hey it's like atonement um you know not knowing what you're seeing or whatever ask questions first that he is attacking her and then later on we have him being kind and, and gentle with the the blind old man and then this, the whole family rushes in and took one look at him. They feel like he's hurting the father and, and all of that stuff. So unfortunately, his experiences with other people, I think he would realize that the fault, unfortunately, is, is with his appearance and education wouldn't necessarily change that. I think education wise, I don't even think I, I think it gives him something special. Mm-hmm. I think that because he's able to learn, he's able to think and be wise about certain things. But it's his it's in his observation of how humans are interacting, interacting, especially that family that gives him that desire to have somebody with him as well. So. So, uh, so this, this this explains his motivation for wanting um, a mate, courtesy of his creator, and explains his motivation as to why he asks Victor to create another creature. Why doesn't Victor just go through the? Why do, do you really <laughs> think that? Do you really think that Frankenstein and his bride would have created a bun- like an army of Frankenstein's and taken over the world? Like because Victor gets an like army I know, but does, doesn't doesn't Victor get like to- he to- gets totally paranoid 
that like sure. I'm doing something like you know he, he he is doing all this woe is me woe is me I'm gonna go off and do my experiment oh my god I'm toiling and this is horrible and granted he's had family members killed at this point so I don't know if he completely trusts the creature but the creature's been given him no reason not to trust him and take him at his word so you know why doesn't Victor just go through with it Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I started to think about this. And also, I do want to ask a question. So after this one, I do have a question about language acquisition. Um, You know, I guess he was, I guess Victor was as thorough as possible. I mean, I know we're on like a clean show right now, but I guess he... Like he did the plumbing because the the character, I mean, the monster says he can subsist on like berries and stuff. Yeah. So I guess like he can go to the bathroom like a regular human being. I guess he's he you know got the correct yeah. plumbing. And I'm just thinking, I, I guess you know genitalia wise, yeah, you know, probably. I guess Victor was yeah. And then the uh, the female Frankenstein's bride, I guess, you know, the hoo ha. Bye. It was just kind of interesting to think about that. But what was I? Here's my connection with that because at one point I think that he was saying, not like in in a creation sense of building, but almost like she, like would she have a child? At one point, like that was one of his fears. I'm pretty sure yeah. I'd have to find my evidence. But I would feel like, don't you think the womb is probably something that would not be able, like the uter, like all of that stuff would not be able to actually be revived? Or do you think that that because the the monster is, you know, walking, living, breathing, that yes, even internally, she would have everything as well? What do you think about that scientifically? Before I answer your actual question, <laughs> I, I wonder. I, I honestly wonder that too. I wonder if it was if it's absolutely possible for for them to reproduce sexually in the in the you know in that biological sense that 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 we are, you know that that thing. Um, you know, even if even if Victor hadn't um, had that exact knowledge of human anatomy to know whether or not that would actually work. So let's say that he just, you know, he, he put everything together like he thought he, you know, like, like everything he thought should be. And it just didn't work because he just didn't connect something right, you know, like, but he didn't do it on purpose. He could have certainly done it. You know, he could have certainly put this one together, but, you know, messed with her uterus or so you know like a, one of her reproductive yeah. organs to, to make sure that she was barren or something like that you know without the monster knowing granted do we get the sequel where like hey I wanted a family and you're and I'm gonna kill you now you know I mean I for convenience of plot it makes total sense that he that he does but yeah I'm, I'm kind of with you I'm like I, I it's it's. I think maybe it's. It's overthinking it to think that maybe that that he would have given the um. That he would have given the female, the male and female reproductive parts, and things would have worked correctly. So, going by the assumption, he's making the assumption that everything would. I think. 
Yeah, I feel like he might be. I mean, mentally, I, I think he's unstable at this point. He's just like a very nervous creature at this point. And so I think he's thinking up any sort of excuse why not to. And I feel like scientifically it, it doesn't really make sense. But he's coming up with like they're, it's going to be worse. And now he's going to, you know, angry creature. But, I, you know, once you look at who this creature is, and of course, you know, he'd be biased because he's telling his own story. I feel led to believe that that's all he wants is a companion. And because he's educated and, and has wisdom, I think that if the female Frankenstein were to go down a, a violent road or pathway, mm-hmm. that he would be able to, you know, talk to her because he would be the person to teach her. And, you know, they could, because he can exist in terrible conditions and there are beautiful places that they can be remote and they would be able to be by themselves i believe that he probably it would have been fine but i just don't think you know once victor was (laughs) he abhorred his creation so much that i just don't think i'm surprised he went as far as he did frankly but he also i just it was a dumb decision because he should have realized that you know the creature was gonna abide by his word when he was threatening his his loved ones so yeah it was he thinks it through i have it it's the beginning of chapter three of the third part of or the, i think it's part three of the book um part three of uh, well, the book the, my my edition is broken up into, th- into, uh, into volumes so there's oh, volume one volume two volume three Interesting. um and so he says that he he thinks about so he he goes into the whole thing and um, it was now about to form another being of whose disposition so I was like ignorant. Um, she might become 10,000 times more malignant than her mate. You sexist pig. And delight for his, his own sake in murder and wretchedness. So, well, she might be murderous. That's one thing he thinks about. He says he had sworn to quit the neighborhood of man and hide himself in deserts, but she had not. So in other words, maybe, and she who in all probability was to become a thinking and reasoning animal might refuse to comply with a compact made before her creation. So she might not want to go to South America and live out her life with, with him. They might even hate each other, the creature who already loathed his own deformity. And might might he not conceive a greater abhorrence for it when it came before his eyes in the female form? She might also turn with disgust from him. To the superior beauty of man, she may quit him, and he be again alone, exasperated by the fresh provocation of being deserted. So he's coming up with all these reasons that this could go sideways, and then eventually um, uh, says, uh, the demon thirsts to... Let's see. Even if they were to leave Europe and inhabit the deserts of the New World, yet one of the first results of the sympathies for which the demon thirsted would be children and a race of devils would be propagated upon the earth who might make the very existence of the species of man a condition precarious and full of terror had i a right for my own benefit to inflict this everlasting curse a curse upon everlasting generations so he goes through like this whole thing of like you know what if he hates her what if she hates him oh no what if they unleash you know hell on earth and things like that and i think you're right i think he's kind of rationalizing his way out of this experiment because he never wanted to do it in the first place um yeah I don't know I don't know if it, if the if he is so even to the end he's so of his own thoughts and things that he you know he, he's made assumptions about this monster about this creature that he's created about this creature's personality even though the creature has told him what you know has made all these promises and 
maybe he's thinking he's making like a Faustian bargain and the and the devil's going to go back on his word because that's what the devil does, you know? Sure. So, um, is he punishing himself? Is he being punished by nature? How much of each? Who's the he? Victor, sorry. Okay. Because, yeah, you could ask that for yeah, either yeah, one. Yeah. Is he punishing himself or is he punished by nature? Yeah. That's interesting. For his unnatural deeds. Yeah. I like the thought that nature is <laughs> punishing him because it goes back to my original thought that he just didn't respect death as much mm-hmm. as I think he should have. So I, but you know, what's interesting is even though he doesn't respect that aspect of it, of nature, the excursuses, excursuses that Shelley takes on Victor's observations of the beautiful countrysides mm-hmm. is very interesting because you look at that and you see, yeah, I mean, he recognizes the beauty of nature and he's awestruck by it. But then what? That didn't translate to sort of real life, which is it's a weird little disconnect. But I do feel like nature is the thing that punishes him. Do you notice that um, that that Henry and Elizabeth are kind of anchors for him and they kind of bring him back to the world in a sense? And nature kind of helps provide that, that he goes along, walks with them and and he does see the beauty of the world like through like his time with them and things like that so there's something about because i know also notice that like his experiments are done in isolation the second one with the woman creature is done on the orkney islands which are in like the hinterlands of scotland you know he, <laughs> that's the second time he is that in tonight's conversation <laughs> he, he dies in the arctic i mean like he he basically yeah. goes into these barren places with without civilization and some of which are beautiful and naturally but at the same time often to a place that is not you know that 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 is a way, and 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 you know these are the people in his life who brought him back, but they all end up dead at the end. Um, what I always find interesting is that the creature doesn't kill Victor. Victor essentially dies. In nature, nature almost gets his gets its way with him. You know, I mean, in a way, the 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 poetic justice would be that the creature did kill his creator because the creator rejected the creature. Sure. Um, but then the you don't think that nature is the thing that killed him off? No, I do think that. Nature is the thing that. Oh, because okay. you said almost got his way with him. No, the, uh, the creature did. Oh, the creature. Yeah, yeah, the creature okay, I'm sorry, I heard yeah. nature. Nature, gotcha. nature, kind of nature does him in. You know, he he dies because of exposure or whatever. You know, he's because he's very very weak and sick. Um, he's weak and sick several times throughout this entire novel, but but he's weak and sick. Um at the end and then when when Walton finds him and then and then he dies but you know it's interesting to say that nature kind of foreshadows you know it's kind of foreshadowed after he gets sick after he creates the monster because he'd been malnourished essentially so yeah maybe nature is kind of getting him back um why is the creature kill itself then you think the creature killed himself the creature says he's going to kill himself Okay. I just felt like maybe that was more of an existential. He's going off on his own. No, he's. Um, How do you think that creature can kill himself? I would have sent. He says. Um, I mean, he was shot and it did hurt, but um, I don't know. He's just so large. Uh, he he says farewell, Frankenstein. He mourns for him. 
blasted as thou wert, my agony was still superior to thine, for the bitter sting of remorse will not cease to rankle in my wounds until death shall come forever. But soon, he cried with sad and solemn enthusiasm, I shall die, and what I now feel will no longer be felt. Soon these burning miseries will be extinct. I shall extend, ascend my funeral pile triumphantly and exult in the agony of the torturing flames. The light of that conflagration will fade away. My ashes will be swept into the sea by the winds. So if you're taking him literally, he's going yeah. to burn himself. <sighs> some say the world will die in fire. Some say in ice. Do you think Clerval and uh, Frankenstein could have been friends? Nah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Do you think Walton and <laughs> and uh, the monster could have been friends? Yeah, Walton and the monster. Um, had Walton been as good of a listener to the monster's story as he had to Victor's story, there's a possibility that Walton could have found something redemptive yeah. there, that there might have been a redemption there. The uh-huh. idea that, that he he may have given him a chance because there is a mirror of Walton and Frankenstein. You know, both of them are undertaking things that are essentially just like ridiculous, almost like suicide missions. You know, Walton up until the point where he finally decides to turn around is determined to get to the North pole, you know, yeah. putting yeah. his crew's life in danger. I mean, that's like, you know, just kind of that arrogant. I talk about arrogance, talk about hubris. So Walton in, very, in, in a way is kind of, you know, he's the reader, but at the same time, there's a little bit of a mirror being held up to him and being held up to Frankenstein. So mayhaps it would have been a different turn of events had the creature sat and talked to Walton beyond just, you know, leaving the ship after Frankenstein's death. But, but so, so why not? Why doesn't, why doesn't Walton sit and talk to the, I'm sorry. Why doesn't the creature just sit and talk to Walton? Yeah. Did I answer your first question? I don't think so. So I'm kind of doing, so I'm kind of going back to why why does the creature kill himself? Because you had asked me if you thought it was metaphoric, but I think we're supposed to take that literally. Poor guy. And then the funeral pyre just reminds me of the Dido right? and yes, <laughs> it does actually. Yeah. yeah, I think. Well, you know, the easy answer is his one hope mm-hmm. for companionship is gone, and it could have been two hopes, I suppose, but in two hopes and one man. So no one is going to be able to recreate that potentially. I mean, Walton oddly was interested in it, and Frankenstein was like you sick man (laughs) and also you know his father his creator can no longer like the opportunity of having a relationship is also gone so i think yeah all hope is lost for him unfortunately Mm -hmm. and it's interesting just because walton had wanted a friend too yeah yeah, that's what I'm saying. They could have been friends together. And there's even a moment where he says like he was being, I don't know if seduced was the word he said, but he's like, I could tell that I, you know, just as Frankenstein had said, because of how he talks and everything, yeah. there's a moment where he, he feels him listening. He feels himself listening to him and caring about him. Yeah. You, you did ask if Frankenstein and, and, and um, Walton would have been friends. I think so. Um, the creature and Walton, I think we were just talking about that. But th- what does Walton learn from this? Because he does turn around. He, th- we, we are yeah. to assume he, that 
when all this, because it ends with the creature leaving, so he hasn't turned around yet, but we assume that once the ship has, once the ice has broken and the ship is free, that he's going to turn the ship around and he's going to head back to whatever port they left from, and I think in St. Petersburg or something. Um, aside from the fact that he learns that, hey, maybe I shouldn't go on this crazy expedition and expedition and endanger a bunch of men who might, you know, hired for this, um, does he learn anything from this? Are we supposed to learn something as an audience? This is kind of my concluding question here. I, I'm actually nervous for this character because he's clearly a scientist. Mm -hmm. He's going on an expedition. And as you said, you know, he's going to the extremes. He really wanted to push it to the end, despite the dangers and, and the men practically, you know, mutinous. He asks questions about the process of creating the creature. And so does he learn anything? I think he learns a lot about science. I think he learns the dangers of science. But I also feel like there could be a sequel. And he'll be following this guy trying to figure out how to create his own creature to see if he could. Because I, I don't know. It just, it makes me nervous how interested he was after all of this. You know, every tale, all the tales, all the woe that Victor is saying. He's like, so what was that process like? And yeah, so I, I think he learns that it's possible that nature uh, is able to be maybe overcome. Like you can be your own god, uh, that science has so much to offer. So I think he's... I guess pleased that he chose that particular pathway and, and, you know, they're always scientists are always looking to answer questions and, and look beyond. So does he learn a moral, a, a moral to the story? Yeah, I do wonder. Yeah, that question. would be another one. Yeah. So, you know, the entire time he's, he's running to his sister, his sister is married and there might be a kid. I can't remember. So, you know, it's, she's partnered up. I think he probably considers, you know, companionship and, and what that means because it doesn't seem like he's necessarily friends with his crewmates. It seems like he had a good relationship. He moved up through the ranks quickly mm -hmm. and it seems like people respected him, but I don't know if he has any, any friends. And so perhaps, you know, going back to that, one of the themes that I brought up potentially, maybe he, he sees the importance of, uh, having a comrade in arms, having a friend that, you know, it, it keeps you, hopefully, from making disastrous mistakes or, or going down a dark path, though, of course, Victor had a BFF, and we see how that turned out. So, scientifically, I don't know if he's learned anything good, mm -hmm. but I, I think maybe he's learned a little something about, um, yeah, sort of what it means to be human and, and what we desire or need most. Yeah, perhaps the conflict between ambition and friendship or that quest for recognition and fame or that accomplishments versus, you know, the value of, of companionship and, friend, and and friendship that, you know, like, is there a loneliness in pursuing these certain things that, you know, you're is it worth setting aside all the things that like, you know, do make us human for this pursuit of this scientific thing? Um, what's the line in Jurassic park? Your scientists were so obsessed with whether or not they could do it. They'd never stop to think if whether or not they should or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can picture Jeff Goldblum saying it. Um, oh. uh, is that the lesson we're supposed to take from this? The idea that, um, you don't, 
that you need friendship in this life or else you're going to go down dark paths? Or is it that we shouldn't mess with the natural order of things? Is Shelley warning us against scientific, away from scientific pursuits? Is she, um, what do you think her message to us as an audience might be? I think don't play God, I mm-hmm. think is, is the simple one. I think that not warning. I mean, this is like the extreme of what could potentially happen. Yeah. But I feel like you need to respect nature, you need to respect science, and you need to try not to to be necessarily the creator. Because um, I, I think maybe you go too far and, and bad things happen because you just don't have a grasp of it. But science, I think, is is not inherently evil. I think, you know, look at how far we've yeah. gotten because of science. So I, I'm hoping that she's not anti-science, but I think just like anti, you know, playing God. Yeah. I think it also goes back to that sort of ancient... Um, classics uh, era of don't uh, defy the gods, don't try to defy fate, you know, tempt fate and those sorts of things. You know, the idea that that you are messing with you are messing with things that are beyond your comprehension or control, and, and there are consequences, and you need to consider the consequences for what you do. But I don't see it as anti science either. But I do see a a moral thread running through it and that, you know, we are trying to see like, you know, what exactly could happen or like, you know, the, that you have to, you have to proceed with caution or you have to take certain things into consideration because your ambition will blind you. So, um, anything else before I go on to the last question? I wanted to ask about language acquisition. Yes, go ahead. So it seemed a little unreasonable for me. Number one, great Scott. I mean, he's just standing outside of the window hours, days, months on end. I don't know if we get to years, but it was a long time. Mm -hmm. And just, I guess, the way he presented it is just like this little crack. So it's just interesting how much observation he was doing and how he's able to do it. But the language... uh, I don't know. Do you find that this is believable, that just listening, he's able to uh, pick up on cues? And I can understand because Safi, I think her name was, Mm -hmm. because she has, she and him are able to almost work together because she does not know the language either. And so they're teaching her and I'm sure they're, you know, holding up a bowl and saying bowl in French. and, And then he's also learning that but does it seem reasonable that he's able to grasp you know all of this stuff, even body language that he's able to pick up on all of this from observation and even the reading because are they teaching safi i hope that's safi like that. okay S-A-F-I-E. so it is s-a-f-i-e yeah. okay are they teaching you know letters and and the reading especially i think is is one that that gets me because i think you could be very adroit at audio and oral speaking, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily do the the writing. What, what do you think about that whole thing on how he acquires the language, French? The the uh, orally, audibly, I, I I can I can get that because you're, you're supposed to believe that he's like he says he's in a hovel, so I think he's in a. In a, he's sheltered on like the outside of the house somehow, 
like he's in like a little abandoned room or something like that where he can kind of see and he can sneak around rather undetected or he he learns pretty quickly and he, I think this is behavior that he learned prior to being in the presence of these people that he learns to make himself scarce around people like he's he's encountered so many people who've rejected him that he knows how to sneak around at this point which is ironic considering how big he is so yeah. it's very possible <laughs> that he could be hiding in this room listening and watching where he is able to and can pick up the language and then i think when you hear enough repeated over time you, I don't know if fluency is possible, but cer- a certain amount of, you know, a certain amount of knowledge of it, especially if you get the chance to practice. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about the written language either. I can see where like reading and writing might come in at, at a very, very rudimentary level. You know, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, I don't really have beyond watching my own child. Who eventually picked things up? Who I will say, I will say, um, my son when he was a baby, um, wasn't talking a lot, and um, wasn't developing de- developmentally delayed because he was talking, he was making sounds. But we realized that he because he kept having ear infections oh. that he couldn't necessarily hear, and um, we had to have that you know that minor surgery that some ch- babies and, and toddlers get, where you have those tubes put in your ear tubes put oh, in, you know, yeah. so that you, cause his ears wouldn't drain. He would get ear infections all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Once those went in and he could really hear a lot more, it was the language acquisition came quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, you know, but granted his mother and I talk a lot. So, so around him, <laughs> no, we talk around a lot of him. So he picks it up, he picks it up, sure. he picks it up. And with the reading, you know, it was a lot of exposure to words, and um, he, he has he had this stubborn streak of. It was weird. It was like when he finally realized that us, him learning to read would not stop us reading to him. He decided, okay, I want to learn how to read. So, like, I think that he, the monster, the creature, could have picked things up. In a way, now it also depends on whoever's brain he had. You know, in Young Frankenstein, oh, yeah. it's it's Abby Normal, because um, he because because yeah. he grabs the abnormal brain off the because he knocks the brain off it the, the the one that he wanted he knocks it off the shelf and ruins it so he grabs one he's like he's like who's did you grab it's Abby Abby who Abby Normal um, oh God I love Young Frankenstein. <laughs> The scene with the blind man and young Frankenstein where Gene Hackman is serving him soup and he keeps ladling the soup into Peter Boyle's lap and Peter Boyle's like, ah! <laughs> anyway, um, uh, now I go on to go watch young Frankenstein. But anyway, as I was saying, like, I think he could have picked it up. I don't know if he could have picked it up as much as he had unless the brain that, that, that Victor had swiped was um, a really good or, or, you know, somehow he created a super genius or something. But... For the sake of plot convenience, I think it does work. You know, um, we're also supposed to imply that he was there in that area for a long time. So perhaps he did pick up quite a bit, at least language-wise. Reading and writing, I think it's a little more, a little bit of a stretch more. But I could imagine that he could probably have talked and understood 
as much as he did. Um, I mean, he's reading some big stuff. The yeah. fact, I mean, it gave me, of course, delight that he was reading about <laughs> was Plutarch and the Caesars, yes, wasn't yes. it? Or yeah. So. I guess it would have been Suetonius. It was Plutarch, though, wasn't it? I think it? so. I think Plutarch is mentioned. Okay. Well, and, and these people aren't um, peasants in any way. They're exiled noblemen. You know, they're, of course, they're yeah. the exiled aristocracy, so they're educated as well. So there's a little bit of learning through osmosis there, which, again, it's a little far-fetched, but it's just like some of the things we're talking about when he rejects his creation. We're like, where did that come from? For the yeah. sake of what is a really outstanding novel, um, it's like you kind of let it slide because of like what works out in the end, you know? Because the monster is there for the monster creature. I always say the creature. I use creature and monster interchangeably, but the creature is demonstratively more of a threat because he is intelligent, because if he's not, he's just like, and then he's like Jason Voorhees, you know, he's just kind of like mowing people down and you just have to find out, you just have to find a way to kill him. But now the monster is cunning and, and he's vengeful and I'm going to be there on your wedding night. And he is, and he kills, he frames, he kills Elizabeth. And I mean, he frames, he's he he acquires enough intelligence to frame Justine for William's murder. You know, because he wants to hurt this person who created him. Um, and, and it's a demonstration of like, you know, I hurt him and uh, I hurt you. I killed him. I hurt you. I hurt your family. And if you don't watch yourself or you don't do what I ask, I'm going to do it to the rest of them. So he's he's he is he is smart. It's he's vicious. And I don't, you know, to that one point with Victor, I don't understand how he was so naive. I mean, Frankenstein did not get what he wanted. He wanted a companion. And basically saying, if you don't give me a companion, I'm going to rip people out of your life. He does it to Henry. Why is he under the assumption that the wedding night is about him? Of course, it's about Elizabeth. He's getting rid of everybody around him. How could Victor be that naive? I mean, do you, yeah. Men are stupid. I, what do you think? Is it reasonable that, that he he's thought that? That he's that much of an when... idiot? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I think it's because, again, it's 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 him. He he wallows. He, again, he, he's arrogant. He is, he's self-absorbed. And he shouldn't have been surprised that the monster, that the creature came for Elizabeth and not him. But again, his own, the fact that he, he's always, he's always demonstrated how much of like, how obsessed with his own issues that he was, you know, that it does make logical sense that he would only think of himself at a moment like that. Yeah. My final question regarding that is, do you think that the monster wants Victor to be alone? Like him, or does he just want to get rid of everybody that he loves? I think because I think there's a difference between. Well, because like so, so to go back to 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 go back to why Victor was like just really quickly why Victor was so obsessed with him because uh, was so kind of self absorbed with the wedding. I think was also because he 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 had made the monster so angry he figured the monster was going to come for him next, 
and you know so that he's like oh i'm the next target this is it this is it he's just i'm take me do with me what you will because that's what you're that's what you're after i think that he does i think that he wants victor to feel as alone and horrible as he does and then he'll go after him. <laughs> then he'll take him out. It's almost like I need to destroy everything about you before I finally destroy you. Because you stole, first you stole parenthood away from me. Like you rejected me as a father. And then um, you you took companionship away from me as well. Ugh. Yeah. So finally, um, now I don't. We don't have to ask the "Would you teach a question?" because I actually do teach this novel. But uh, is this something that you would recommend to somebody else? Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I really do. I think with a good healthy dose, I think it'd, it'd be good to read this with Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Hmm. Two science fictiony yeah. things, both dealing with good and evil, you know, but in in different ways. Yeah. 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 I, I honestly, this is one of those where, like, you know, because because I will. I will give a side eye to a number of 19th century English novels. This is not one of them. This is one where people talk about its reputation and how important it is to the canon and everything. And I'm like, oh, yes, it is one of the most important novels ever written. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of the first science fiction novels. That alone is why, why you read it. And I think it still holds up, too. Um, whereas some other ones, some other science fiction novels uh, from from back in the 19th century don't necessarily hold up as well, or they are very much of their time. But this this is one that, you know, you could re you could reset, or you could just do as it is. I mean, it is so it is so good. So we do have some feedback, and uh, Stella, I believe we have an email from uh, Robert Ward. <laughs> you believe correctly. Here we go. When the new episode started, I was worried. I wasn't sold on A Doll's House like I was with the other play, Glass Menagerie. And honestly, I'm still working through my thoughts. I think I may need to watch an adaptation of it before my opinion will finally be settled. Here's the thing about the episode. I was worried. Oh, here we go. I was worried when Stella mentioned the contemplation of suicide and novel. <laughs> What's a pet peeve? Why is he worried about that? It's a terrible, terrible thing. I, myself, and torn? What? On its use here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And afraid of how this discussion was going to turn. Oh, great, Scott. I tried to place myself in the described situation and time, seeing if I was more sympathetic or less so to mixed results. The concern with the show, however, was clearly unfounded, as I thought the two of you discussed this issue and the way Nora left beautifully. I hadn't thought of it until you were talking about it, but it made me think of how the supporting character, Astrid, left her husband been in the film Crazy Rich Asians. Oh my, I feel like I've been spoiled. I haven't seen that yet. I've gone off on the film a few times, but I only now realize how that climactic moment parallels A Doll's House. I want the best of the character, but troubled with how it's handled. Torvald is a terrible person, and Nora absolutely deserves to get as far away as possible, but the circumstances are too messy to be so clean. The turn from being so desperate to so resolute in her leaving was too sudden. On a personal level, I simply fail to comprehend the certainty in such a short amount of time. I still don't oh, – here we go. I still don't fully <laughs> – oh, my goodness. I still don't fully grasp why suicide contemplation is a pet peeve. 
and had hoped this was going to be expanded on. I've said before how it's a connection I can personally work with, so I would like to ask if Stella would mind explaining why it's so generally an issue with her. I'm going to ask you to do that now. Um, I, I will say... I will say how the only way I could see it would be an issue with me if it's one of those things that's done too many times to the point where I think it almost has become like I, I don't like I don't like when when there's a there's a chirp or something that is or, or a method of storytelling that is used so many times that it becomes a cliche because it's like you know by the the first couple of times when the character's like you know I, I'm thinking about killing myself or I'm, I actually do it it's like okay you know that fits the story but like by the time you get to like the thirty like the the tenth twentieth thirtieth story to use that um, then I kind of check out I'm like oh this again but I don't know if that's your issue or not so why do well, please expand upon this stuff <laughs> uh, enlighten I absolutely, us absolutely I absolutely and I want to let you know that this is in fiction and this is in storytelling in fictional storytelling mm-hmm. if it's real life situations so I as a plot device as a plot okay. device at real life situations I absolutely would not consider it I, I wouldn't call it a pet peeve I would have uh very I would very clear concerns mm-hmm. for the person. I know that suicide, I mean it's a tragedy. I know you know it's I I don't want to give any statistics, but just yeah. you know, my heart So you would be like, oh this again. <laughs> no, I would never do that. I, I prom yeah. So, so you're the talking people, strictly as a plot you know, kids I, I teach middle scores and you know people laugh and make fun mm-hmm. of teenagers and middle scores, but it is a really tough time. And I see kids go through things that you know, maybe I've experienced in my life, but maybe I can't even comprehend, you know, family life and things like that. So I know it's always there and I always get super worried about it. With that said, um, the only time I can appreciate is a kind of a weird word, but the only suicide that I almost like respect, this is kind of weird, is the Romans, the Romans and what they thought of it. And we've talked about this with Julius Caesar, yeah. right? I absolutely can get on board with why they're doing that. You know, do I like suicide? Absolutely not. But I understand that, you know, honoring themselves and their virtue and that it would be better to die than to be into in another uh, army, like man's uh, camp. No, that's the wrong way. It would be better to die than to be a slave to an enemy, right? Okay. Or with Lucretia, you know, her honor was taken from her, and so she felt like the best thing she could do is take her life. So I absolutely get what they're coming from there. Okay. So they're my, like, two little frame of minds here. Fictional storytelling. I hope you edit that well. Fictional storytelling. It it just... It annoys me. It annoys me because it's and it's not, you know, the men. I guess the only man I've seen commit suicide in a story is probably uh, in Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've I mean, because he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Romeo. OK. Oh, yes, I suppose that's true. Because he can't. I didn't even think about that. Her. Yeah, am I thinking of, is there anyone else now that I, I yeah, I didn't think, yes, thank you, Tom. Yeah, I didn't Aside from non-Roman it. characters like your Marcus Brutus and stuff. Yes, I, yeah, I, I was just of, thinking about all of them. So it just, yeah, can you think of any other males? Off the top of my head, no. Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it's like a female thing, but it annoys me because for the most part, I, I'm reading lots of females that are mm-hmm. committed suicide. And it's just like, 
there, there's got to be, there's got to be another thing that you could do. So the first one that I encountered was The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And th- it's very similar, actually, to A Doll's House because she sort of has this option of uh, going on her own way and, and taking up, you know, her own life. And then she ends up walking out into the water. And I'm just thinking, really? You, you know, could you not have done something else? Isn't that then how Virginia have- Woolf actually did kill herself? Oh, gosh. I don't know, yeah. actually. I do. I, the only one I know is Sylvia Plath. Yeah, that was The Oven. I think it happens actually in the bell jar. I think that one of the characters like attempts it in there. I think it's like a weird little existential thing, unless I'm thinking about the virgin suicides, in which case someone also does that. But I had to do. I know that in Girl Interrupted, there's at least one as well. Oh, so yeah, yeah, some crazy stuff. The other one that I read was it's by um, Tolstoy. Thinking, thinking of her name, Anna Karenina. Karenina. Anna Karenina. And it wasn't even the end of the book. I mean, you know, she obviously, you know, it's a little iffy. Her moral code is a little, but yeah, she just decides to leap in front of a train and that's it. And then the book is not done and I've got to read about what happens after her death. And I'm just thinking, my goodness, this is really the way you want to go. And then we had, I was going to be really upset had she walked out into the icy water because I mm-hmm. thought, you know, you have done this wonderful thing protecting your husband. Don't go out this way. So I guess it's hard. You know, I've just explained the three ones that I've encountered that really frustrate me a lot. But it's just that we have, you know, these female characters. I love strong female characters. They don't have to be crazy strong. I guess the, the, you know, what are they called? Mary Sue's doesn't have to be a Mary Sue. They can struggle with life and everything. But I just feel like, you know, part of the beauty of being a human being, but, you know, being a woman is like these struggles that you go through and somehow overcoming them. I mean, it's going to absolutely be messy and everything, but to just end it, to just end it and that be the end of the story and not see how you could have come out on the other side, whether it be, you know, tragic or triumphant is just, it's a bummer for me. And I just, that's why it just gets at me. It gets at me. I'm trying to remember, did Antigone kill herself or no? Who? I yeah, haven't read Antigone in like 20, 25 years. That is, uh, yeah. I know that, I know that Oedipus's mother slash wife commits suicide upon finding out Yes. What has happened, and then he takes one of the pins off of her robe and he uses it to gouge his own eyes out. But at the same time, not that it was justified, but like you can see there's a logic to her being so horrified by what has happened that she has decided to to commit suicide. And that would be, I mean, that goes to the Lucretia idea mm-hmm, yeah. and honor right there. Yeah. And Antigone, if she does, I'd have yeah. to look it up. But, um, but you know, but she this, was in a terrible situation. Yeah, but we're talking, we're talking about, but we're talking about ancient Greece and ancient Rome versus um, correct the nineteenth and twentieth century. And yeah. with the nineteenth century, twentieth and twenty first century, et cetera, where we see women committing suicide, does that start to fall along the lines of the old Gail Simone? I think it was Gail Simone who came up with the idea of women in refrigerators. Oh, interesting. You know, especially if it's used to um, create growth in another character, especially a male character. 
You know, like would if if Nora had killed herself, and the after effect was Torvald realizing what he had lost and becoming a a better person as a result. Is that essentially a textbook example of say a woman <laughs> in a refrigerator, right? Oh man, yeah, so and I mean, a modern, with Anna it's, and it's a modern trope, right? Yeah. So. Because the book doesn't end with Anna Karenina mm-hmm. throwing herself in front of the train and you get um, more of her, her lover and her, her children and things, that certainly uh, goes to that. It's been a little since since I've read that. With Yeah, Torvald, that's interesting mm-hmm. because does he change, you we, know, because yeah. of that suicide? Yeah, I, I don't know. Because yeah. isn't it supposed to yeah. – yeah, it's all for the purpose of the – of the male character and, and pushing that storyline along. And I don't know that it would, cause I feel like it's more her story. Yeah. I think it's more her story and she would have been doing it out of desperation anyway. Um, I think you've explained it well. Um, Robert, anybody else, if you want to write in, um, let us know, but uh, back into Robert's email. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. I feel like we should have one of those little suicide, um, like hotline little number <laughs> things too. Well, not as a, I meant it seriously. Oh, seriously? Cause you know, yeah, because they have, you know, at the end of like a, a TV show that they have mm-hmm. a suicide on there, then do that. Because, you know, Tom and I actually care about these sorts yeah, of issues. Yeah. It's just like as a plot device, that's exactly, I don't want to say it's lazy writing. It just frustrates me because I'm like, come on, you know, be the, be the strong woman I know you are and, and survive and do something. So, mm-hmm. which Nora, she does. She doesn't walk into the ice pond, so I'm glad for her. Okay, let's see here. On one last note relating to a doll's house, I would like to say that while I called Tom's choices safe, aha, <laughs> I did not intend to be for that to be horribly dismissive. I don't believe it. Tom's choices are always appreciated and undoubtedly leave me better off. I just prefer Stella's on the whole, so now he prefers them. I see. Here's an example of how Tom's choice pain off. Uh, however, of Tom's choice pain off. Here is an example, however, of Tom's choice paying off. On New Year's Day, I was watching a Japanese exotic, sorry, a, whoa, what? On New Year's Day, I was watching a Japanese erotic thriller. And early in the film, there was a line, something like, this isn't Ibsen's A Dollhouse. <laughs> Oi, touche, Tom, touche. Another remind. Were you in that film, Tom? No. Another reminder: I should never underestimate the value of your picks. I would have never understood that if it weren't for you. Thank you for the monthly question. Here we go. Since Tom already published his favorites of 2018, I, I guess apparently I should do that. I wanted to ask: Do you have any clear goals for this new year? Are there any series, genres, or author authors you can think of that you really would like to read this year? Goodreads count. Did last year impact how you'll approach this year? You want me to start with that one? Yeah, let's do it. <gasps> um, last year didn't necessarily affect how affect how I would approach this year. I tend to kind of take things as they come. Um, I don't think Stella and I are trying to outdo each other on the Goodreads <laughs> counts. Um, so at least this year, maybe next year we'll try it. The one thing that I am trying to do, um, I have a couple of small projects reading projects that I'm getting through for instance right now I'm reading through all of the in bits and pieces reading through all of the um, novelizations of the various uh, the first six Star Trek movies Uh, the one big thing and and if you go to the uncollecting.com which is a new blog that I started back in January 1st I am trying to read through all the things that I own that I haven't read so I have all of these um, 
books on my shelves that have been purchased and shelved and I haven't either never read the, I've either never read them at all or I haven't read them for years or whatever. But they're kind of marked as like, I haven't read this. I keep meaning to read the same thing with a bunch of comics and watching a bunch of movies. So my goal is to get through as much of that as possible and really not buy any new books if, you know, if, if I don't, if I don't have to. Oh boy. Um, and, um, the Are you explaining this to them? Yeah, yeah. So, so my my goal okay. is to basically kind of have the zero sum game of of, uh, of consumption because I have accumulated so much that I would like to read stuff, decide whether or not I want to keep it or give it away, and by the end of the year, really have not, um, really not accumulated more. You know, it's kind of a zero sum game. Uh, the the couple of exceptions would be a getting gifts from people for my birthday or Christmas. Oh my! And then be um, anything that I would buy for this podcast. But even then, when Stella or I have a book that we do not own, my first stop is not a bookstore. It's or Amazon. It's uh, the library, either at my school or the book room at my school. Or the public library, and only then, if I cannot find it there, which is very rare, um, that will I buy the book. Um, so, for instance, the last couple of, you know, for instance, um, Persepolis, Ella Minope, Station Eleven, um, The Glass Menagerie. I'm trying to think of other books that you have. Uh, I've taken those out of the library or grabbed them from the English department book room. Um, I bought the audiobook of Julius Caesar to listen to along with the text that I had. But for the most part, when still, for the most part, that's just me going to the library and picking out the book. So it's, it's not a purchase because I'm returning it. But yeah, so my goal is to basically read through as much as I own. And, uh, and I'll be, and if you go to the uncollecting.com, that's my new blog for it. I'm actually reviewing the stuff there too. So. So that's my goal. What are your goals for this? Yeah, I guess I need to do a post on what I read as well. So I, my goal based off of last year, I usually play it safe on Goodreads and I put mm-hmm. 80 books. But for the past couple of years, I've been over 80. So I've decided let's, let's okay. just do 100. So I, that's my goal this year is 100. I mean, I've all, I've been surpassing it. So I think it'll be okay. I've got a big book that I'm starting tomorrow called yeah. Les Miserables. So there's, that's one of my little goals. I've been adding things. It's interesting. I've, I guess I've filled the void. As Tom has been excising from his Goodreads want to read list, I've been adding things on. So Les Mis, I would like to read, which I'm going to start tomorrow. And the fine, I've never read it. The Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings trilogy I'd like to do this year. So I'm not sure if that's like a yeah, summer read, read those, uh, or I read those when the first movie came out. So it's been a long time since I've read them. Yeah, I've never read them. When I bought them at a used mm-hmm. bookstore, she's like, oh, and I said, I've never read them. She's like, oh, so so I think that would be good. And then there's a new there's a Game of Thrones kind of a prequel esque mm-hmm. novel out that's about the Targaryen family that I would like to read. So those are the ones I think that I'm excited about. Over the Christmas break, I started reading my first manga series. I've read – I don't really read manga. It actually makes me nervous, which is a little strange because of the right uh-huh. to left thing, and I just feel like I'm doing it incorrectly. But after you read four volumes, and these were two in one, so it's really eight volumes, you get used to it. And I got so used to it 
that there are still tricky panels that I'm trying to figure out how they overlay or how they work. But I got so used to it that then I picked up a regular, <laughs> a regular with quotes, graphic novel, and I was accidentally reading the panels right to left. And I was like, wait a minute, this is wrong. But it's called Maid Sama, and it's uh, an anime that I very much enjoyed. And the anime only got one season. And so I know that the manga goes like twice that and I wanted to see where the characters ended up because I, I really like the, the characters. So I decided to, to read that. So yeah, over 100. I got a classic there. I need to get back to my list. I mean, Les Mis mm-hmm. is on my list and I think the Lord of the Rings are as well, but it would be good to, to do some of this. But I'm getting to the point on my list where things, I'm having to do interlibrary loan, which it's $3 per loan, which isn't mm-hmm. terrible. But, I mean, if you're going to have to do it repeatedly, it's going to start yeah. to add up and, you know, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I've gotten to the point where I don't really buy books as much unless it's something that I know that I'm really going to like. I, I try to seek out the library first, uh, which is lovely. And then I did want to – I also want – another classic I want to read is Vanity mm-hmm. Fair. I thought it would be at the school library, but it is not. So I think I'll read Les Mis first, which is 1,500 pages, and Vanity Fair is 900. So maybe I'll take a break between yeah, read, long read. books. But yeah, like I think – yeah, I think that's – Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, a nice yeah. little picture book. Okay. So those will be, yeah, I've got a couple. I still have yet to read Motor Girl that I got from uh, Terry Moore. Yeah, so I need to need to read that. And I've yet to read Blankets, which has continued to sit on my shelf, and I've not picked I that one that up yet. I read that a number so. of years ago. I checked it out of the library. It's a quick read. It, I think it might have taken me a, day, a couple of days because it is such a long book. But It's, it's pretty it's, thick. It's really, really good. Yeah. I, I remember enjoying that. My um, Goodreads want to read list and the books that are on my shelf and stuff does overlap at certain points because I own a lot of those books. I just haven't read them and then there are ones that, you know, so that's kind of in my in my uh, in my thing as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through it. Um, one cool thing is that if you have a household Amazon Prime membership, like Amanda and I share the same Prime membership, we can share each other's Kindle books. So oh, I can access she- anything that I bought for her and she can access anything that she bought for me or whatever. So or that she bought or something. So that's how I that's so she'll how know I, that's, if you purchase well, that's, how, yeah, that's how I have access to all three of the Crazy Rich Agents books, which I do. I would like to uh-huh. read because I really enjoyed the movie. So I don't have to go buy them oh, because she already okay. has so them. Was it a good movie? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. Okay. So I really did enjoy it. Yeah. So finally, he says, I simply didn't read enough. I would really like to read more and have made up a list of old and new releases I would like to read. I have read everything from light novels. And he says, Toradora, for example, which, if this is the same Toradora, that is the anime Toradora with uh, the tiger and the dragon. You and I should talk, sir, because I, I loved that one. Anyways, so Torador, uh, to the remaining novels I've yet to read from horror ar- ar- uh, from horror author <laughs> John uh, Gide Linkvist. That you know that last name sounds familiar. Hmm. Linkvist. I don't know, uh, or Linkvist. I'm really curious since Tom's year and lists are always such a hodgepodge and wondering if there will be any planning as we set forth into 2019. Apparently, I guess, is this the second time you've done a post like that? I did want to be last year, too, yeah. I mean, at the end of 2017, too. I am just woefully, I'm just not doing I really am. Here's to another great year. Scholastic book, buddy. Oh, and then there's a P.S. 
Well, I may have been extremely critical of Atonement. By some miracle, it was not my worst book of 2018. It was close, but edged out at the last moment. And then there's smiley a large, faces. smiley-faced emoticon. Um, yeah. I, I tend go. to... I wonder what My reading tends to be hodgepodge because I do like to alternate either between heavy and light or nonfiction and fiction and then come back. Uh, Sometimes I'll read like a whole series in a row or something, but... Um, yeah, you're reading a book about food preparation. I actually right just now. finished that, actually, so... Um, I finished oh. it yesterday, and I picked up uh, The City of Mirrors, which is book three of the Passage Trilogy. So, <laughs> oh. Which was sitting on my shelf waiting to be read. Oh, wait, isn't that the show a just came show out. Yeah, out? it just started this week, I think, as of our recording. Is it about yeah. the vampires? Yeah, so I've read the first two okay. books. I had the third book for a while, and I just hadn't gotten around to it. So I'm like, you know what? I saw the – I had DVR'd the first episode of the show, and I'm like, I'm going to read the third book. Also, because my dad wants to read, and I told him I'd send it his way after I finished it. So that was motivation enough. Oh, I forgot a book that I really want to read is Musashi, which is mm. a samurai book, but it's hard to find. It's hard to find, so I'm on a quest to get that one. Okay, we now do. it's we have up a to Facebook you. comment from, about a doll's house from Iowa's Joe Crawford. Joe Crawford, uh, who is a regular in the Professor Allen uh, email bag. So he says, oh, read this boy. one years ago as a freshman in college. The episode was a nice refresher of the work, as I had forgotten all but the end of it. One thing I must say, with the exception of Don Quixote, I have never been worried by any of Stella's picks. Uh-huh. I was delighted uh-huh. when Jane Eyre, Rebecca, and Atonement were picked. I love the variety that Stella and Tom bring to the show via their choices. One day I'll tackle the I'll tackle the Cervantes. I just have to set aside the time, which I can understand too. That is a that is a task. Um, as good as as yeah. much as I did enjoy it, that is a task. Uh, great show, and thanks so much for doing it. Mostly every month. P.S. Professor Allen and I would not be averse to some Thomas Hardy every oh once in a while. Jude the Obscure, anyone? Um, I might have. I don't know if I, I still have my that. copy of that. That's what is that? Yes, is that what the book Hardy, is? No. Speaking oh of books, did yeah, you? Of, thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know the only one I would consider doing because I've actually read it is because of the Durbervilles. Um, but it's still yeah. that gives there is some anger with that from me. But people keep the emails coming. I always love these feedback sections. I hope Stella does too. Yeah, and I appreciate when people trust trust yeah. the picks that I so, have. Um, speaking of picks, you have the pick for the next episode, which will be episode 28. What I is sure the do. pick? What I is our sure next book? do. I'm going to dive back into the young adult literature nice. pool and spice it up with some mm. classics, like actual, you know, the course of the classics and everything, Roman culture, things like that, and pick The Hunger Games. <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing The Hunger Games by Just Suzanne Just the first Collins. one. Just the first, Just the first one, yes. Book. Okay. Just the All first right. one, yes. I think that okay. should be okay. All right. So tune in next time. We will be talking about The Hunger Games. Until then, mm-hmm. you can follow us on Twitter at RecReadingCast. That is R-E-Q Reading Cast. Um, don't forget our webpage. And as always, thank you very much for listening to us and take care. And we'll see who makes it. Out alive after we both bolt to the uh, metal cornucopia. Will it be Tom or Stella? I run like a fifteen-minute mile, Stella. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm either just gonna run the other way, or I'd be dead before you even get halfway there. Oh my goodness! Oh man, I'm We're only gonna on have week to four of Couch to Five K. Damn it! Um, so. Oh.
yes, yes. Good night. Okay. For listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, 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 If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.